Coming up on this week's episode of Destination Linux, we're covering community feedback, CentOS, newest release, Windows updates, break again. Does this mean more Linux users for us? Tips, tricks, our famous software pick, plus a very special community edition of Ask Us Anything. We had you ask us questions in our discourse forums, and we're going to answer them here on this episode. All of this and so much more coming up right now on Destination Linux. Welcome to episode number 179 of Destination Linux. This is a podcast about sharing our passion for Linux and open source. Destination Linux is a show for all experience levels. So whether you are a master sudoer or you're brand new to Linux, we welcome you. My name is Ryan and with me today are the agents of S.H.I.E.L.D., Noah and Michael. So let's find out what First of all, before up. we move what? on, we need to specify when we say agents of S.H.I.E.L.D., we mean strategic home automation, internet encryption linux division night wow did he come up with that on uh, obviously he came up with on fly because so. it's he terrible stays up at night like writing this stuff down to <laughs> yeah. tell us. well i mean I, I i put in effort okay i'm sorry well let's find out what everyone's been up to michael what is new in your world this week please say it's not new obs scenes because nobody cares i do i do that anyway but that's not what we're going to talk about we're going to talk about Nextcloud because i've been using Nextcloud a lot lately uh, a couple of weeks ago, I started to dig into Nextcloud more than the standard way of I was using it, which was the file syncing and that kind of thing. And that's all I really used at the time. But I knew it could do a lot more like calendar and photo stuff. I just never really looked past the basic features. So I decided to try to consolidate my workflow into Nextcloud and as much as possible and see if it's how well it would work. And it turns out I'm a big fan of Nextcloud and should have totally done this much, much earlier. So I started using Calendar to keep track of my, the things I need to do for the day. I found a cool app called Deck, which is like a, a Kanban board style method of doing to-dos and tasks. And if you're not aware of what Kanban is, it's kind of it's a style of using task management where you have these boards and you can move uh, a task from one board to the other. It's kind of like Trello if you've ever used Trello. It's basically that because all Trello is is just a Kanban board service. And as soon as I saw that, I was like, oh, I have to try this. And I also tried a bunch of other like add-on apps that they have. And it turns out I'm a huge fan of Nextcloud now. It took me years to finally do that, but I am very much into Nextcloud and I, I, I can't wait to try all, all, like all the other stuff that's available to me. So uh, if you haven't you know, fully experience, experienced Nextcloud, you definitely should give it a shot because I think I have you know, changed my view about it completely. So it was just a file sync thing. Now it's the whole suite of my product, product, productivity. Yeah, they've really taken Nextcloud to the whole new level with all of the add-on capabilities. And then you've got the web dev, dev, dev as well, features that you can implement in there so that you can connect it to your machine and automatically sync files which is what a lot of people use Nextcloud in. But what I like what you covered there is there's so much more to the tool that you can do. And I think mm -hmm. that's pretty awesome. I also so found no, a bunch of stuff. Like, for example, I even found a Breeze theme for Nextcloud. So you can make your Nextcloud blend in with your Plasma desktop, which is awesome. I, that's why you've switched everything. Once you found that, you're like, that's it. I'm sold. I'm going to do everything. That it. is not what convinced me, but it did definitely help. <laughs> so, Noah, what have you been up to this week? 
I uh, I started. We got a we we made some changes and 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 redid our server for uh, LinuxDelta.com for our Matrix chat. So for those of you that are kind of following on long last week, uh, Matrix became the community interaction point for Southeast Linux Fest, and so that's where people were coming in to hang out. And um, after it wrapped up, you know, every night we would we were getting in there throughout the weekend. We were there till two three in the morning, just talking about Linux and hanging out and stuff like that. We didn't want to get rid of it. So uh, come Tuesday, the Matrix room. And, and we hung out in a Jitsi conference call and, and hung out there and um, and find that we got all the server stuff tweaked and stuff so that it can be an actual reliable resource. I found out from uh, some of the folks on matrix.org that actually that server is is really overloaded. So they're looking for places that can spin up other uh, community servers that people can join. And so if anybody's interested in doing that, you can visit riot.linuxdelta.com. We've got a web instance set up where you can run, you can uh, use your own client, but it's completely federated into the matrix community. And we're just hanging out. So I've been doing that uh, for the past week and just kind of hanging out and interacting with a lot of people have not really had a lot of one-on-one time before. And now I have the opportunity to do that because of some of the notifications and, and prioritization that goes on with Matrix. And then above and beyond that, uh, bought a new Raspberry Pi 4 and put Home Assistant on it. Nice. Um, we, had the, uh, we had the guys that do the Home Assistant podcast on the show two weeks ago. And uh, behind the scenes, they gave me some tips that, that kind of got me started. And now I'm automating everything with home assistant and that has just been really fun and so uh both of those things both the matrix server and the home assistant thing started out as kind of just a trial thing for for a single purpose and have become now like staples in my life and and of course uh, because it's open source you can integrate uh, matrix into home assistant so messages that are important i even see in my home assistant dashboard so it's kind of become my dashboard for life i feel like you need to get the pi 4 with the eight gigabytes of ram though to really be order boss. buddy so All right, good. Ryan, what's going on in your world this week? So I finally, back a few episodes ago, well, a lot of episodes ago, because it's been over two months, I ordered a Rock Pro. And I've been waiting because I wanted to compare. We love a lot of the products from Pine64. And so I wanted to compare their version, basically, of a Raspberry Pi and got the Rock Pro 64 in. And I've been playing with that this week. And in fact, I bought a switch, an HDMI switch, so that I have three Raspberry Pis and the Rock Pro all connected to one monitor so I can play with things in there. And I got their case and everything else. The problem with the Pine with Pine 64 in this case, and we give them lots of love and they deserve it, but their shipping, because of everything that's gone on, I think it's far worse. But the shipping was horrendous. I mean, it took nearly two months to get this product in which was very frustrating. So I think when you think about competing with Raspberry Pi and other things out there, you've got to fix that distribution setup, right? So that you can get products to people. I mean, I think you're most people are okay in this current situation, maybe waiting a couple of weeks more, but two months was a little bit, little bit rough on that, but I'm happy to have it. Everything works except my mistake. I ordered a European wall charger for it, but thankfully I have lots of cords in place. Um, very powerful little machine. And Michael, to your point, I think I'm going to be putting NextCloud on it and make it a NextCloud server and test out all of these different implementations out nice. there. Of course, I have a NextCloud server on DigitalOcean, but I want to try a local one as well so that everyone here will have different files, maybe movies and things that I want to share with everybody right there on that, on that little Rock Pro. But it's a powerful little device. And even without any of the cooling solutions or anything else on it stays nice and, and cool and able to operate everything I've thrown at it so far. And right now it has Manjaro on it because Manjaro. Naturally. Yeah. 
So we have to follow up with one thing that I think uh, I'm very interested in the Rock Pro 64 and like how your experiences will definitely let us know in the future. But you've been working on Python. Oh, you're going to bring this up, aren't you? You mentioned Python multiple times on the show. And let's talk about something that you recently realized. And that is PyCharm is a fantastic editor. And while up front. No, let me tell the real story about this. (laughs) In my exploration and love for true open source stuff, Noah, had nothing to do with Michael. One night Mm -hmm. I was sitting up there and I'm using Visual Studio Code. And one of the problems is Visual just, Studio. Uh, hold on. Now, this is on Michael's Windows box or this is you're doing no. using this? on No, because you can use vi- Visual Studio Code in Linux. You can use it I on see. Mac. You can use it everywhere. So oh, everyone, good. a lot of developers in Linux are using Visual Studio Code. It's really spreading like crazy. And it's a Microsoft open source project, which is fine in itself. But there's a problem. The problem is when you look into the privacy section of Visual Studio Code, there's a lot of telemetry stuff in there. So now we're bringing telemetry software into Linux, right? That's no well, good. Nobody wants that. In Visual Studio's favor, you can turn it off. But then there's another section that says, but we don't control what happens with any of the extensions you add on, which is one of the most powerful parts of Visual Studio code is the ability to add in the massive amounts of extensions. So the extensions themselves can have telemetry in them as well. And you really can't audit necessarily that piece of it, or you would have to audit all 100 extensions or whatever you use. The issue with Visual Studio Code that made it hard not to use it is being brand new in Python, a lot of things are setting up virtual environments, uh, setting up the, the, the initial coding section with Visual Studio Code in Python was one click. You basically save a file in Python, it tells you, hey, you need to install this, this is going to be your interpreter, it does all the work for you. And if you use anything else, like Atom or whatever, you have to go do all that stuff manually, which for somebody who's an expert in Python, no problem. For somebody who's brand new in Python, don't really want to deal with that part. I'm still trying to write hello world, right? Michael and I were on a, on a conversation and I said, man, I really want to get off Visual Studio Code. I want to find something that's as good as Visual Studio Code. But here are the things that I need for that to happen. It needs to have the extensions. It needs to have an easy setup environment. And he's like, have you looked at PyCharm? I was like, yeah, I looked at it in the past and you know, it really didn't do anything for me. And he's like, well, check it out again. So I downloaded PyCharm and I was completely blown away. It adds a whole new environment for Python that I was missing. For instance, in Python, you can import different modules. I didn't know, and I had to ask Michael, I was like, are those modules other people's code that are somewhere else? Because Visual Studio hides all of that. In PyCharm, it lists all of those modules on the left, and you can go into the code in every one of those modules so you know exactly what they're doing. The environment itself was super simple to set up. The interpreter, the extensions, everything's there. And I don't have to worry as much, being that it's completely open source software, about it being a product of Microsoft that's now, you know, zapping more data and that type of thing. So I have to give mad props to Michael because he was patient with all my whining about why Visual Studio Code was so much better than all the other IDEs and then was like, hey, why don't you try this and then let me know what you think. And I was sold. And so now I code in PyCharm and I suggest everybody else who's doing Python do the same. Okay, now where are the where are the people where is it not going to work for people? Like, does that only work for Python and it won't work for the other language? And Visual Studio does. Like, how does that work? 
You know, I don't know the limits of PyCharm because uh, it's my first few days inside of it. So I don't know if, how well it works with other languages and things. I believe they have an HTML component for sure and other things that you would do based in Python. Like obviously with Python, you can do websites and things like that. So I think they have that type of stuff built in, but it's definitely something I'm going to explore more. Mm-hmm. PyCharm really opened my eyes to the fact that there's the Swiss Army knife of IDEs, which is what Visual Studio Code provides. And then there are IDEs that specialize in a specific program, and they are, in fact, better than the Swiss Army Knife solution if you have a specific type of code that you're looking at implementing. And I was very happy to find PyCharm. So Jacob brought up a good point that, you know, in PyCharm, we don't really know, and I haven't researched whether their extensions may do the same thing as Visual Studio Code. But here's the difference. To get Visual Studio Code working... I had to install the extensions, right, to get it to set up and work the way that mm. I want. In PyCharm, I have not installed a single extension, which is why I haven't researched it, to write my Python code. So I don't need the other extensions. And I know PyCharm is open source fully. And, you know, there are other languages that you can write in PyCharm as well that are related to Python. For instance, R, which is more of your statistical analysis tool that Python and R work well together. So things that in, in your internet, HTML, JavaScript, that type of stuff you can write in there, but they're all kind of related to Python in some way. But it's not a Swiss army knife. And in fact, as you usually see, when a program is dedicated to a specific task, it's actually better than programs that try to be everything to everyone. And so I'm just really happy that Michael had the patience to be like, let's see if we can find you that other solution. Because to me, it was just a wine session to Michael. And we did. We found PyCharm. This episode of Destination Linux is sponsored by DigitalOcean. DigitalOcean offers the simplest, most developer-friendly cloud platform. It's optimized to make managing and scaling apps easy with an intuitive API, multiple storage options, integrated firewalls, load balancers, and more. So you heard Michael talk about NextCloud. Michael and I both have NextCloud servers set up on DigitalOcean. We do that with a very simple $5 droplet. And you want to know how hard it is? You go to the marketplace, you look for NextCloud, you click on it, and you say drop the server. That's what they mean by an intuitive API. It is super user-friendly, super simple to set up, and you can get in there and start exploring all the cool things in NextCloud as well. And the best part is we're going to give you a $100 credit to go do that with, which is going to last you, well, over two months with the NextCloud server there. And if you do the $5 droplet, it's going to go to that full two-month range. So you got two months, $100 to spend, do.co slash DLN. That's where you go. And we want you to go there so that they know that you came from the Destination Linux community. It helps us, and it helps us thank DigitalOcean for continuing to sponsor Destination Linux. Nice writes in to say, hi, guys. Thanks for the great shows. As I've been watching and listening to you for almost a year now, I have learned a lot. Some things from you guys, some things from the ArchWiki. And indeed, this podcast is great entertainment and a learning experience on every experience level. Well, at least the experience levels I've experienced, which excludes the big bearded guru level. You might remember that I've sent a video response last year, and now I'm doing it again. I hope to express my respectful disagreement with Noah this time titled, in defense of rolling releases. He continues to say, I hope my video can generate some interesting discussions and give some further insight on the topic. After all, you are the council of master suitors of YouTube. I wish the best for you in these difficult times, but thanks for providing a show with such valuable content. 
Cheers! Hello, I have recently watched the 177th episode of the Destination Linux podcast where there was a discussion about the new version of the kernel which has been just released. So Noah made some kind of a snarky comment on how this is going to the rolling release distro so the people can test it for them and other LTS users. And I know it's a joke, but anyways, I wanted to make some points in defense of the rolling release model. When it comes to the kernels, even the uh, maintainer of the LTS kernel versions, Greg Croa Hartman, would suggest for most of the users on desktop and laptop computers to use the newest stable release of the kernel instead of the LTS versions because the newest stable version has the biggest kind of manpower behind it and all the bug fixes are coming out for that uh, faster while these bug fixes need to be backported to the LTS versions which is a very tedious uh, task as he describes it. And when it comes to uh, user-facing applications I think the um, rolling release model absolutely has a place in the world. I prefer that model myself because in Linux, so we have this uh, executable and linkable format, this ELF format for the binaries, and we use a lot of shared binary objects, uh, which are used by all these different applications that depend on this kind of shared object. And because all the kind of the bug fixes, security fixes, additional features, whatever, are worked always, like the focus is always on the newest release from upstream that decreases the burden on the distro maintainers. While in case of a long-term release, like for example Ubuntu, which uh, I think the LTS releases are supported for five years and there is like a new LTS version every two years. So there are sometimes where like three in the same year, three different LTS versions have to be supported. These LTS versions by their nature try to keep like the version numbers flat during uh, the whole time or at least very, not really updating uh, much except for the security fixes. But when it comes to some kind of applications that really need to be well updated as possible, like uh, internet facing applications like the web browser, and you would have to maintain like the three different binaries which are compiled against these three different versions of the uh, underlying dependencies. And this is very tedious can uh, take up a lot of time for the distro maintainers, while in the rolling release we don't have this problem because there is only one uh, release, which is the newest release. So I am curious uh, what you think. I like this guy. I like that he is in here arguing to my defense about why rolling distros are so important. I like that he makes Noah and Michael wrong on both of these points. There, there's no doubt about it that there are advantages to rolling releases. And certainly when you have a problem and you want to go fix a problem, the ability to get the, the, the fix for the problem rolled out to the people faster rather than slower is obviously an advantage. So I, I don't disagree with that point. But from a planning standpoint, when you are Cody MD, for example, and I am writing software and I want to make sure that that software is going to be a pleasurable experience for my customers, a pleasure experience for my users. If I have a problem and I'm waiting for a, a fix to get out, yes, that's a problem. But what about when I'm planning the next version? If we all are, are using the same library files and the same versions of all of the same software and all of the other software that's going to be on a distribution is going to be 
a, a, a target. We know what we're aiming for. Then Cody MD, when they're going to make their software work, they can say, well, here's the library that we can count on. Here's the features that we can count on. And yes, is it going to stagnate, develop a little, mint a little bit? And they're going to be able to say, hey, we wanted to do this new feature, but it won't be available until the kernel does this thing. Yes, that is going to happen. But what you're trading is you're trading the speed of development for reliability and stability. If people have to say to themselves, we're stuck on this for five years. So the only thing that we have to get right, we can't include any of these new features because they're not going to work because you know nothing else is going to work. We just have to make sure that for the next five years, what we have works well. I think that would benefit Linux as a whole more than the ability to be bleeding edge. I don't, I think we're, so, we have our, we, we do so many things kind of, sort of, and we don't do anything really super well. And I think that's where Apple is going to start to eat our lunch if we're not paying attention. So I, I tend to agree. I think snaps, flat packs, app images, those type of things start to take care of the software not being updated because there are many use cases out there for why having the latest software would be a better idea for people who need that, right? And there are some mm -hmm. people like you just made the case that don't want their software to change. They need it to stay the same, generally in a more professional environment. And right. that's for them. But then there's mm -hmm. the hardware aspect to this, that all of the enablement and everything else that comes with the kernels, including, you know, I know they roll a lot of the security stuff in, but there's also other mitigations and things that are within these kernels that I think needs to be addressed. And I don't know that rolling is anymore the perfect solution, but there's got to be a hybrid approach that's better than what we have, to your point, Noah, of getting the hardware enablement out there, at least as an option for people who want it. So when you're going through the install process, maybe you're the one that's like, you know what? I want everything to stay the same and I never want it to change because you're working in an enterprise environment. But you got your new users coming in, kind of like what they did with NVIDIA, where you're like, hey, you know what? I need the latest and greatest kernel and I need the latest and greatest hardware. And I don't want to have to hack my system in order to do that. I just check these boxes and it gets tested and it gets moved in. So I think there's a hybrid there somewhere. To that point, on 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 Tuesday's episode of of Ask Noah Show, we actually we dug into something that Canonical is doing that I think kind of addresses this point blank. Canonical is rolling out a separate kernel that they're going to be using essentially for the desktop, and the idea there is that they're going to have an OEM kernel that they're going to work with hardware manufacturers like Dell to push out so that when something doesn't work on the and they have to make a, a change to the kernel, that it comes out instantaneously to the person that has that piece of hardware. And then they're going to take those changes and submit them to the kernel so that they will eventually get pulled into the kernel tree and become available to everyone. So it's the best of both worlds. If yeah, you're on like a piece that. of hardware and you need that thing right away, you have it. You don't have to worry about breaking LTS compatibility because Canonical is aware of that. And at the same time, once those changes are in, in production and they work and that's fine, now the kernel can follow its own development process and get those changes out to everybody. So you get the best of both worlds. You get the, the, the fixes really quick without moving the goalposts of where software developers are supposed to be skating towards. I think that's a good way to split that difference. I, I like that difference. And I think it helps solve the problem. And, and Jacob in our chat says, aren't you basically saying to me that you want LTS with hardware enablement? Yes. But hardware enablement that doesn't take three to six months to come out. That's right. the key, right? I don't I don't want hardware enablement that I have to wait three months when a new AMD GPU or Intel's new GPU comes out or they enable uh, a new writing tablet or drawing tablet or a new keyboard or something that I need to get my job done. I don't want to wait three to six mm -hmm. months for that to finally reach the LTS. 
I want to be able to get it within a reasonable amount of time after it's been right. tested and, and be able to use it. Because the current hardware enablement is awesome. It's just too infrequent. And so if they can solve that, then yeah, they're, the whole idea of a rolling distro kind of moves out the window. But I feel like, no, this is kind of what they do in Fedora. And we're going to cover that a little bit in one of our news stories. So we'll, we'll cover that more later. So whatever you think, if you think we should go rolling or you think you should stay at LTS, we would like to hear from you. In fact, no matter what your comment is, we'd love to hear from you because we love our worldwide community and we have a bunch of ways for your voices to be heard. So go ahead and send a video just like Nice did and it may just get incorporated to the show. You can send a video or a regular email to comments at destinationlinux.org. A new version of CentOS is out, and this is based on Red Hat Enterprise Linux 8.2. Now, if you're not familiar with CentOS, it is a binary equivalent version of Red Hat. They've recompiled the same source code. They've just stripped out all of the branding stuff that makes Red Hat Red Hat. And there's some exciting changes, some performance enhancements for x86, Intel, and AMD, as well as ARM platform, which throughout the rest of the show, you're going to under start to understand why that's a really important development, particularly for for uh, CentOS and, and really all Linuxes. And the, the thing that Red Hat has done for containers is they are starting to diverge from uh, the standard Docker deployment because they don't necessarily think that's the best way to run containers. In fact, Red Hat's belief is that, that we're slowly going to move away from VMs and into, in, and into container infrastructure entirely. That's going to essentially replace, in a lot of cases, uh, virtual infrastructure. And indeed, it has. And so uh, Red Hat is trying to I guess, redesign the landscape of how we interact with containers, how we run containers, how we use them, um, and try to diversify so that we're not stuck with just one system. And they're doing that with Podman and Scopio and, and those kinds of things. On another note, Fedora 32 just added the latest Mesa 20.11 support in their distro. And so the question is going to become, is Red Hat trying to pick up the desktop slack? Now, there's a lot of evidence to suggest that they're, that they're doing just that. Everything from the fact that they have started to enter into hardware agreements with companies like Lenovo to make sure that when you buy a computer from a hardware manufacturer that Fedora is going to run well on it. They've also, they have agreements in place with hardware manufacturers for not only Red Hat Linux, but also CentOS is an option from many servers that you can have preloaded or pre-installed with CentOS. And I think where Red Hat is going with this is this. You have Ubuntu that undeniably has the most amount of uh, servers running inside the cloud, inside a VPS space, and so on and so forth. Red Hat wants to take a hold of some of that space, and now they have the backing of IBM to fund some of the things uh, to, to start to try to take on Canonical head-on. And one of the things that they have to fight is the fact that when people spin up a VPS, they're doing it with Ubuntu because it was always free. And so you could download it on your home computer and you could run it in a container inside of Microsoft and you can run it on a VPS. So it's no surprise to anybody that that is the, 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 the go-to standard. What Red Hat is trying to do with CentOS, and I think probably why they've continued to look at other I guess, distributions that were trying to do server-side Linux, uh, uh, container-specific versions of Linux, and they buy them up. And then they say, okay, well, now we're going to release this back out. We're going to have Red Hat Enterprise for the people that need support and are willing to pay for it. We're going to have CentOS, which we own and, and fund the development of, and it, it you know essentially is just a, a recompiled version of Red Hat, but we're going to put that out as the community version of anybody that wants to run Red Hat but can't afford to pay for it. And now they're going to restructure Fedora to be a proper 
desktop Linux operating system. And so I think it's a it's a it's a three pronged approach. They're playing in the containerization game and they're paying attention to virtualization and wide infrastructure. They're continuing to offer the support to people. By the way, they're expanding that to the way that people want to administrate now because if you you know, paid attention to Red Hat Summit. What are they talking about? They're talking about administrating the server from the phone. And that's where Cockpit comes in, a web-based administration mm. for the phone available for both CentOS and Red Hat. And now they're going to try to, uh, you know, uh, continue with these partnerships to try to get some space going on the desktop. And so I think when you look individually, you hear about a CentOS release, and you're like, oh, great. That's the latest version of CentOS. Who cares? When you back out and look at the bigger picture of what Red Hat as a company is doing and you understand the prioritization of if you sign up with the Red Hat model, you get good support on the desktop, you get good hardware, you get enterprise uh, performance on the server, and you have a support infrastructure that literally you just go to redhat.com and pay the $800 to buy support. There's no signing up for uh, enrolling individual machines, all that crap. You just, you go pay it 800 bucks, you have access to their support, you have access to their knowledge base, um, and that server becomes supported. That's a really cool move that Red Hat is making. And I think what they're showing, and, I, and what I, I, I say with reservation, but I believe to be true, Red Hat is using the relationship that they have with IBM now uh, to leverage the money that IBM has to further the advancement on the server and on the desktop. They're not running away from their roots. I think that's really important. Yeah, I th what I think is interesting about this and, and the Fedora thing, it ties into what we were talking about earlier with the rolling release is Fedora is adding in that Mesa support, which is really important for GPUs, Intel and AMD, not just AMD, to be able to not only run the cards efficiently, right? Actually enable them, but to actually get the full power and potential out of these devices. So having the latest Mesa becomes an important factor in here. If you look at, you know, Pop! OS, which does a lot of hardware enablement kind of outside of what Canonical does, they're still on 20.0.4. So they're kind of, this is kind of an interesting move, in my opinion, for Fedora. And it made me wonder when I was looking at this whole thing of CentOS and Fedora, is Red Hat finally going to, and I don't mean this in a negative way, but really start putting some big attention into the desktop space, which I think would be way welcome, right? It's going to mm -hmm. benefit everybody if that's the case. I am actually happy to see that they're, they're, they're potentially doing something. And if they are doing something, especially with the Fedora getting updated Mesa and all that stuff, and the, the things that Noah was talking about, like doing a, a, you know, a more centralized like structure, making it all cohesive, I think that is awesome. But it is something that I've always wanted Red Hat to do because of all the companies positioned to do something about Linux desktop and wanting to do something about Linux desktop, I would have expected Red Hat to start doing something prior than, you know, 2020 when the company was like founded in 1994 or something. So in my opinion, and it's not that they haven't done anything. It's just sure. obviously not as big of impact as canonical, right? It's just like a company like in, in the comparison between like how big Red Hat is and how big canonical is canonical has done so much, like an incredible amount of work. And whereas Red Hat has done some things that are very important, but mostly on the enterprise or and the I server level. I couldn't disagree more. So the so okay, to to back up, Red Hat had a a, a, a desktop slash server distro. It was Red Hat Linux, and then they split and they went, okay, we're going to do Fedora as the desktop community version, and we're going to leave Red Hat Enterprise Linux for 
primarily Cerberus. And for a long time, they just had this, this really symbiotic relationship in where the community would test on one distro and then we released on another. And, and as, a, as a server administrator, that was so appealing to go in and say, I'm going to get trained and certified in this thing right here. Yeah, I'm, I'm that's laptop, different. I'm going to run that thing over here. And that that yeah. this thing over here will teach me what's coming up over here when it when it gets standardized and finalized and all of that. That was a sure. really great relationship. And I and and again, I think where their mistake was was they just went, hey, if it's open source, somebody wants to take Red Hat and recompile it. You can. That's how you came up with scientific Linux. That's how you got with CentOS. When I took my certification test, the instructor stood at the front of the room, a Red Hat employee paid by Red Hat, conducting a Red Hat class, and said. Here's your free copy of Red Hat if you want to install it. But the truth is you can just uh, use CentOS. It's the exact, it's binarily equivalent. Go ahead and use that. Like they knew that the company. And it, uh, to me, that isn't so much Red Hat. It wasn't doing the things necessary to take advantage of the server marketer that people didn't have those options. It was kind of the Slack approach. Like, hey, we put the ISO in the FTP. If you want to go download it, go download it. I just, you know, we have an ISO and an FTP. What more do you need? I mean, well, here's the here's the difference, and here's how I can prove your point. We're we're talking about what Red Hat's done with the desktop, and I don't want to take away from the work that they have contributed, but we're comparing it in this case specifically to obviously the dominance Canonical has on the desktop experience and and what they've pushed forward. And when you take it into that focal point there of the desktop space, you know, you don't even run Fedora on most of your machines; you run Ubuntu, and you're a huge Red Hat fan, which I love about you. But I mean, that kind of shows you that even in your experience, the canonical desktop experience has kind of been more popular and has taken off. And, and that's why you're forced to use it to support your clients and that type of stuff. And that says something, right? That they really haven't made the same impact that canonical has in the space. And they could. They certainly have the money. Mm -hmm. They certainly have the skill and capability to do it. And I think this may be the moves we start seeing a Fedora bringing that focus back into the desktop. And that would make me very yeah. happy. Right. That's what I'm saying is I'm excited that this is happening because I've always wanted Red Hat to be more of a player in this space. I'm not saying that this is a, a knock against Red Hat in terms of like, you know, what they're doing now. It's more of like, I wish they would have done it faster or sooner. And I think that they have a lot of potential to make an amazing situation. My point was that, yes, they were working on making great stuff for sysadmins and this enterprise stuff and all that. But they just kind of ignored the desktop world. As far as like, you know, the the regular user style of desktop where just someone who wants to use a platform as the, as the desktop that they that they want to use. And I think that the reason I am vocal about that piece is because I think Red Hat is positioned to make an amazing product for the desktop user. And I just I want agree. them to do that. So that's the I main agree. thing. Yeah, because and so and not to not to not to, to to beat a dead drum, but you know when you say like, well, Red Hat hasn't you know done a lot of contribute. I mean, look where System D came from. Look, no, no, no. who do you think funds no, no, no. Gnome? I'm not saying that this Red Hat doesn't done a lot of contributions. They have done a, a ton of contribution. They made System D is great. I I think it's actually a really like, good. Like, ooh, we're 90, gonna get hate like comments like for that. Ninety percent of the funding for the Gnome desktop comes from Red Hat. Yeah, I know that too. Although I don't think Gnome's that great, but I I do think that they have done a lot of stuff. And that it's very good. It's just, in my opinion, they do things that are kind of like like tangentially, indirectly related to the desktop. They don't ever focus on the desktop. Like the entire point about Red or Fedora is that for they've actually changed on their page recently because I checked it like a like a week ago. But for like years, it was only saying that R Fedora was like an incubator for Red Hat for Rel. 
And that's all right. they considered it. And it was like, why make Fedora what it can be? Make it be the ulti- the ultimate desktop for Linux because it has the position to has the possibility of being that. And Red Hat has the power to make it that. And that's why I was happy to see that they changed it. And that's why I'm even more excited to see what they're doing now because I think Fedora has the potential to be the desktop for Linux. And that is what my thing is like Red Hat has done a ton of stuff for Linux and the core system and the infrastructure and the sysadmin and all that stuff. But they have kind of not ignored the desktop, but not it's not a focus. It's not been a focal point. Right. If they put it as a focus, I think that there is a, a, an amazing amount of excitement that would come to the Red Hat team and the Fedora team. And I just want them to do it. There's probably a potential trillion dollars out there for them. Yeah. Just a thought. So have you been thinking about trying WSL for some reason or another? Yes, it's amazing. I love it. Of course you would. But anyway, oh. you you might want to hold off on that. And because in, in the news this week, Microsoft's refresh tool called Fresh Start seems to be somewhat broken. Fresh Start's purpose is to allow users to reinstall Windows 10 without losing their data in the case of bug or major issues. Now, and, come on, Michael. This okay. is ridiculous. You're being unfair. Microsoft doesn't have bugs that erase people's data. It's never happened. We're, you're exaggerating. Stop it. Well, well, I guess, okay, technically it's never happened except for October 20, 2018 when it did happen and they destroyed a bunch of people's data. <laughs> oh. uh, but, te- you know, but I mean, bugs in software isn't that uncommon. But the, the reason we're, that for reporting bugs is that you can have them addressed. The issue mainly here, people did report it in their insiders program and Microsoft it, decided to ignore it. So it's not necessarily that people weren't aware of this problem or that they didn't report it. It's that Microsoft decided to not care, apparently. They also did the same thing in 2018 in October, as Ryan alluded to, that they basically pushed out updates that broke people's system in the sense that they just deleted data. And there's even other issues where they've impacted. So they've deleted people's data in updates twice. Twice, yes. They've done they've they fixed one up they they fixed that update where they deleted people's data, pushed out another update that deleted people's data. So that's they're just trying to push the philosophy that you need to back your data up. That's what's important. They're trying yeah, that's good. Thanks, Microsoft, for helping us with that. (laughs) Yeah, exactly. So they they did they pushed another update and deleted deleted data, but they also pushed updates that did for Windows 10 that broke uh, using playing certain games that were kicking people out of their profiles, that were breaking printers, that were doing all kinds of stuff, including boot failures and all and sorts. So it's not necessarily that we're trying to say that Windows is terrible. That's just a given fact. But we're saying is that you should probably consider you know instead of risking your data by using Windows, you could just consider using Linux. As, you know, this, by, is a, this is like a, a big problem. System. Nothing against WSL. I think the work there is interesting. I think it's brilliant on Microsoft's part. I think it's absolutely ingenious on their part, in fact. And I think it's a direct attack on Apple. I don't think it's really going after Linux like some people theorize. I don't think they really care about Linux that much other than to take out Apple. And so that's why they're they're incorporating it. And But the bigger issue is in, in these Reddit forums, I'm seeing... So many people now do exactly what I thought was going to happen, which is saying things like, I finally got to get rid of my Linux box. I'm on WSL now. This is so much easier for me. I don't have to have my Linux installed in anymore. I could just do it in WSL. Isn't this awesome, guys? And everybody's, uh, and that's exactly what I figured was going to happen with this. And I don't know. I don't see this bringing massive users into Linux. I see it making people look at Linux as a tool. And I just wanted to kind of 
bring into perspective that the the other issue I see a lot happening in the Windows world is, for instance, most of the computers in the place I work are Windows. There are so many times throughout the week that they have programs that crash. They can't, their system's locked out. It's rebooting. They can't get certain programs to work, but nobody blames Windows. But when you're in Linux, <laughs> yeah. right? If something's buggy and you have a problem, like Pulse Audio is not working correctly, or I had to go into this section to add a no mode set to be able to get my video card to boot. It's like, oh my gosh, Linux is so ridiculous. It's so terrible. It's so hard. So what battles do you want to solve, man? I've been saying that. Because it blame, you know, the, it, the instant idea is that we blame Linux for everything. It couldn't be the hardware you chose. It couldn't be anything else. It's Linux and terrible coding. But with Windows, it's just, you know, it deletes your data with updates. They ignore, they have millions of people who signed up for the insider program that tell them there's a bug and they ignore it. Well, you know, it's Windows, it's fine. Like we just kind of give a lot of a pass to this. And, and yeah. I hope, it's not that I think there are certain use cases in professional environments, and we've heard from those people in the past where, yeah, it makes sense to have WSL around for them, makes their development, their work requires them to use Windows machines, and now they can have WSL on there. There are reasons for it. But when I see regular users just like, now I can play all my games in Windows, and I've got Linux in WSL, it's just kind of, eh, I don't know. Yeah, that stuff is is definitely annoying when you see people saying that because one, they are just kind of they're acting like having the Windows side is a good thing, and it's not a good thing because of all these problems. And you're totally right about this. I had a conversation with someone where I switched them to I switched them to Linux, and they, the reason I switched them is because they were having issues with their laptop, and their laptop was super ancient, and it was like even literally falling apart, like the hinges was kind of falling apart on it, and it was just it was just, it was just very bad situation. And they were like, I don't have the money to upgrade my my system. Can can you help me with that? I was like, Well, I can help you, yes, but just keep in mind your your laptop is very very old. And literally falling apart. So while I'm doing this, it will make it easier to use, and you will be able to do the things you need to do. Because I did make sure that they they I had the possibility of doing everything that they wanted, and I gave it to them. And then for like two or three years, they were just using it with no problems, and they were like, "Yeah, this is great. It's kind of slow, but it's it's you know it's great." And I was like, "Yes, it's slow because your hardware is ancient." And then like the next six months later or something, they sent me a message saying, "Hey." I, I got a new laptop and uh, I was like, okay, cool. And they're like, you just won't believe how much faster Windows is than this than Linux. I was like, what? <laughs> like you are you are you seriously telling me that your brand new laptop that you replaced a ten year old laptop that's falling apart is better and then therefore better than Linux? And the 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 funniest part about that, as soon as I said that to them, they're like. Yeah, you're right. That's a silly, that's a ridiculous thing for me to say. But without that conversation, that's what they would have gone out there and spread and told sure. everybody that, that, yeah, I tried Linux and it was slow and it was crappy. And then I got a brand new Windows machine and it was fantastic. And most people aren't technically minded like us. And they would nod their heads and go, you're right. Every time I go into Best Buy and I pick up one of those brand new Windows machines, it's so fast as soon as they get a new version out there, except for the fact it raises my data every once in a while, it's completely fine. Yeah, exactly. But so just just to kind of wrap up this topic, I guess, is that uh, in case you're wondering about, you know, whether you should use Linux or Windows, you should probably check out Linux because, you know, system developers for Linux typically read bug reports and fix those bugs before shipping the new operating system version. Weird. Why would you do that? I know, right? All right. So we wanted to do something really fun with the community on our discourse forums. Go to destinationlinux.network if you want to go to them is where a lot of the community goes and hangs out and talks about various things. 
we wanted to do something we've actually never done in all, what are we at? 179 shows, which is yep. uh, ask us anything. And literally you can ask us anything. And well, I should never have put that out to the community because you did. There's a <laughs> lot of silly questions, but there's also a lot of technical ones. So I've kind of arranged these questions so that there's a combination of all in here. And there was a lot of feedback. So not every single question got asked in here, but this was something really fun. And I think through some of these questions were really good. There's a lot of technical learning here opportunities as well. So let's get started with the first question. Vinyl Ninja asks Noah, this is a funny one. Why, Noah, are you the only, maybe it's not funny, only one not sporting a beard on this show? Well, Vinyl Ninja, what you have to understand is I don't want to shame my other co-hosts. And um, whoa, whoa. And what? So if, I, if, I, if, I, if I grew a beard, what would happen is they would instantly turn into child's play and <gasps> they would be overshadowed by my, my massive beard. Are you yeah. talking, are you saying this bird's nest of a beard that's barely maintained that you could easily outgrow that beard? I'm just saying the times that I've tried, uh, it uh, it does not look like my hair has been, never mind. Uh, that's why, is I don't <laughs> want to You just don't want to put shame to us. Okay. Yeah. So the next question is, uh, Natalix asks, what do you think about Blender being used as a video editor in place of other open source alternatives like Caden Live? And because I have a video series out there on using Blender as a video editor, I figure I am the expert here to take this one on. Sure. Yeah, thanks. Yeah, go uh, ahead. Blender is amazing as a video editor. It is when I it's kind of funny because this goes back to what we were talking about with PyCharm versus Visual Studio. Blender is the Swiss Army knife of everything. You could do 3D animations with it. You can create films in it and do your video editing. You can do 3D animations. You can do games in it. You can create pretty much anything. It, the difference is Blender does everything really well, but it's also geared towards professionals. So when you go into there, if you've never done video editing before, any advanced video editing, mm -hmm. let's say you come from OpenShot, which makes things really simple and easy to use and that type of stuff, and you go into Blender, you're going to spend a lot of time in tutorials. The capability, though, of Blender is just unmatched. Like it is, it has multi cam support, it has full hardware enablement support for your GPU rendering and things like that built in through OpenCL and, uh, and uh, NVIDIA. It has just all kinds of powerful implementations with 3D graphics and intros that you can create and all of that, all of which you're going to have to spend a lot of time learning. Now, recently, I've actually been going back and playing with Blender as a video editor again, and I really love it, but I've spent a lot of time. I've created a lot of videos, so it was worth the investment to me. And I have a video series out there. It will show you the basics of how to use Blender and do your cuts and picture-in-picture and, picture and text overlays and, and things like that. That's what you need for most videos. But I would say Blender is a fantastic tool for anybody to spend time learning on because it's a professional tool. You'll find it in workplaces all around. And you can do animations and other things with it. Once you learn the basic layout, you can go from video editing into 3D animation and now those format, well, it's going to have different options, is going to be relatively the same for you. Additionally, Blender does, because it's a fantastic open source project, allow you to do training as well. So they have a new training class, which is a way they're trying to raise money, which I love seeing that in open source. They need to make money. They need to have funding and those things. They have a training program out there where they have professionals that use Blender, that have created movies in Blender, that are professionally recognized, that will train you in using Blender 
if you want to do that. It's very reasonably priced. So you can go check that out as well as a good learning opportunity if you wanted to say change careers or make a career out of it or just become a pro in in Blender. Yeah, that's that's pretty awesome. I didn't know about the training thing at all. So that is a really interesting thing, especially it's a great way to make money as a as an open source project if you're providing a classes to learn how to use those open source software projects. And I think that Blender, I agree with most of what you said, Ryan. I think that Blender is a fantastic piece of software it's it's just amazing how much it can do it can do like as you said motion graphics and video editing and all kinds of stuff 3d modeling it is an amazing piece of software but you mentioned how if you haven't had experience doing video editing that it would be a big barrier to entry because you have to learn the way that this works and i would go ahead and say that even if you do have professional editing you still have to learn how it works because blender is a very particular structure of how it does everything so no matter what you will have somewhat familiarity of how things work but you're still going to have to learn the particular way that blender works and blender is fantastic but there is a fairly big barrier to entry so i would say that if you've never done video editing i wouldn't start with blender because it will be very overwhelming but if you are looking for something that is an open source tool that is very powerful blender is a fantastic option Yeah, I would say it would take you a good two hours if you're relatively intelligent, learn things quickly to kind of be able to do all of the basic fundamentals of Caden Live in Blender. Take between two and four hours to do the basic parts of Caden Live, not the advanced features. And then from there, you could start learning some more of the advanced techniques that Caden Live makes much easier and other video editors make much easier. But again, you know, there's a lot of jobs here. In fact, there's Blender jobs right now that are, are available on Blender. So, I mean, it's a huge project. It's one of the, to me, one of the premier open source projects that when you say, sure. show me something that open source does better than the proprietary, I would, I would bring Blender into that conversation all day long. Absolutely. What does, what, what proprietary thing is there that really competes with Blender? Because After Effects really isn't a one-to-one comparison. Motion isn't really a one-to-one comparison. I mean, there's not, to the best of my knowledge, there's not a popular proprietary thing that does what Blender does. Designing 3D 3D graphic, computer-generated graphic stuff from scratch. Mm -hmm. Right, but what if you're talking about if you're talking about Maya, like, probably would be your 3D best. Studio Max. Sure, or 3ds Max Four, or yeah, something yeah. like that. Sure, yeah, yeah, 3ds Max and Maya are probably or Cinema 4D or whatever that kind of thing where it's just the 3D model stuff, not necessarily the motion effects. Like because I think Blender started as a 3D modeling tool. But great question, you got us talking there. We appreciate that. So next, let's move on. Snorlack asks Michael, "What's your favorite guilty pleasure, music or movie?" Well, I don't have much of a dubstep pleasure. is the answer. He loves dubstep. Okay, so let's let's specify this important piece here. Guilty pleasure implies that you like something, but you're ashamed that you like it. I am not ashamed of any of the things I like. In fact, I lo- I do like dubstep. I like anything's EDM. I like metal. I even like opera. So basically, anything that's not country, I'm a fan of. Uh, but there's actually is something that I want to talk about because people might consider this as a, uh, a com- community member. Uh, Adam Adam Groves t- told me about this particular uh, style of music that I never heard of, and then I watched it. and I was like. This is ridiculous, and I love it. So it's called kawaii metal, and it's a uh, it's like <laughs> it's Japanese pop music combined with metal like metal instruments and stuff. And it is as ridiculous as you think it sounds. It is that, 
but at the same time awesome because of how ridiculous it is. So if anybody wants a suggestion about like something that might be considered a guilty pleasure from somebody, check out some kawaii metal. I thought you were going to bring up your watch parties of My Little Pony, but that's interesting. It's Okay, I, I did a watch party of Avatar, the last oh, airbender. My bad. I always and, get those mixed up. Yeah, and Avatar Last Airbender is a fantastic show. We've already established that. And I did another watch party with it for yesterday. So I am not remotely any guilty. Hey, Noah, have you been invited that. to these watch parties? I was not. I haven't been invited. I've never been invited, I haven't been invited to one of either. watch parties. And I've heard that some crazy things happen during them. Wow. Yeah, Lots of crazy stuff. Exciting. Lots of crazy stuff. All right, Noah. Uh, Walt JT or Walt JT asked, do any of you still keep music offline? And the reason I direct this at you, Noah, is because I know I don't. And I'm pretty I sure do. Michael doesn't, but this could be quite 50. broad, including MP3 files on hard drive, CD or vinyl or anything in between. Let me start with a funny story. Last night, real discussion between my wife. We're walking up the staircase and my wife goes, I have a favor to ask. And I said, okay. And she goes, you might not like it. And I said, okay. She goes, can we not watch local media tonight? And can we watch something on Netflix? And I'm like, <laughs> Yeah, of course. Yeah, sure. I mean, that's what we pay for Netflix for, right? So we can watch stuff on Netflix. But the thing is, I've, apparently, I've set a proper example for my family that they default to local media and only go into the to the other zone when absolutely necessary. Right. Yeah, I have I have tons of local music, and I love having local music. So let me let me use it as an example. Let me use this question as an example to try to hopefully uh, illustrate a point. If companies made it easy enough. To purchase things legally, no one would ever pirate content ever. Let me tell you why. You know, the last time I ever downloaded a song off the internet was before Amazon came up with every song you could ever possibly want. They're all ripped at decent bit rates. They have the, the, the artist and the title and the track numbers all correct. It's not some guy recording off of his Sony tape player or whatever and uploading it to 64 kilobits per second, some stupid thing, right? And it only costs 99 cents. I don't, once I buy the music, I, it's not like I am tied to using Amazon service. I just download the MP3 and I have it. You have to understand that the highest bit rate you can encode an MP3 is 320 kilobits per second. The highest rate of CDs are typically around 2,500-ish bits per second. So understand the amount of quality that you're throwing away when you're ripped to a CD as opposed to ripping to FLAC. Um, if I have a CD, if there's a piece of music that I really like, Santana comes to mind. I have high quality uh, flack rips of those um, because they sound really, really good. I've also gotten, I, I've also really gotten into um, to high bit rate audio, 192 kilo, 192 uh, sample rate, and so on and so forth. I, I I divide my music into two categories. The first is the flack rips that are really high quality, and I'm using it for real listening experience. Volumi, of course, supports high end digital audio codecs, um, and so it's a it's a it's a high quality USB DAC that you can plug in um, and, and and listen to to music the way it was designed to be heard. But then I keep the MP3s for all of the songs that is just my casual on my phone on my Sailfish OS device, which is usually where I'm listening to music. Like Justin Bieber, Umbop stuff. Right, that, that kind thing. of stuff. You know, yeah. you don't need the Hanson Brothers in full uncompressed uh, <laughs> quality. I mean, just 320 bit kilobit will work. But the other important thing, and the reason why I maintain two separate collections is, fundamentally, there are artists out there that are no longer releasing CDs. They literally export the MP3. They put it up on iTunes or Amazon or on their own website even. And that's what you get. That is the source file. So it has, whether I like it or not, whether there is a technical reason to use higher quality of music or not. The reality is that has become the standard for music, 320 kilobit MP3s. So I well, use I'm going to beat all of you here because I have okay. a massive vinyl co collection. Michael can attest really? to my home. I'm a huge vinyl fanatic and I cannot 
Do you think fine. it sounds better or do you just look for the opportunity? It doesn't to sound say, better. It absolutely does not sound okay. better, but it makes my hipster right. persona really, <laughs> really That's the reason, reality. The reason yeah. he has vinyl so he can be a hipster. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, I guess. yeah. Like if I bring so my better. vinyl soundtracks in my MacBook Pro into a Starbucks, who's going to out hipster me? Nobody. And that's the whole <laughs> right. point. But the reality is, in all seriousness, the vinyl does not sound better but it does sound completely different. And I, for some music like Pink Floyd and other things out there, to me, there's nothing like the sound that a vinyl make, the sound that the vinyl gives you with that kind of scratchiness and coarseness that makes you feel like you're in that time period more. And that's what it does for my listening experience. So I love vinyl. It makes sense because they also are designing the music to be listened to on vinyl in those cases. So it would make sense. That's why it would be like the best experience for that. Yeah. Um, And I found somebody who was giving away their entire collection. They collected their entire life and I bought every single one of them. So I have an amazing vinyl collection. Noah, when you come over, we'll sit down and listen to it. All right. I'm t- so do you get into like the other hardware like that it does tie into your computer so you can use good headphones? You just like have a record player that you set up and just set it on. I have, you know, some decent edifier speakers that are hooked up to the vinyl player. Play it out with the DAC. The vinyl player. You can't yeah. call it a record player, huh? Well, I'm more hipster than you, so don't <laughs> even try to challenge me. Yeah, apparently. Okay. <laughs> it's a vinyl player. All right. Going on. Uh, Justin Baugh asks Michael. Microsoft buys Canonical tomorrow. Now, what do we do? What do you do? Well, okay, let's let's take for consideration. I don't expect this to happen, but if it were to happen, I I think that that would be a problem for the Linux ecosystem because of how important Ubuntu and Canonical are. Uh, but I don't think that it'll happen. I don't have really any idea what I would do. I know what Noah would do. He'd smash his Apple keyboard, wouldn't you, Noah? <laughs> I honestly let me let me let me play devil's advocate. Would it really be that bad? Let me let me describe a world for you. Just tell me what you think, okay? So Microsoft buys Canonical, and now that they own it and everybody that uses it, they make money off of. So they say to themselves, the NT kernel, it's a real pain in the tuckus. What are we going to do about that? Well, let's get rid of the NT kernel. That's going to break a lot of legacy compatibility stuff. Oh, well, we can run a legacy compatibility layer because since we know how to execute PL code, let's go ahead and do that. But the rest of the world is running on servers in Azure, and that's where we want to push people anyway, software as a service, right? We can just spin up the Windows desktop on demand and, and stream that to people. And then they have they buy this computer, and it has this base operating system that runs a Linux kernel, so we have security and stability and all those things taken care of. And then they pay their you know 90 bucks a month or whatever, or whatever it is, 50 bucks a month, and that gives them access to a, a Windows desktop that we stream right there inside of there. And we have all the tele you know, telemetric so we can still collect the data and all that stuff. And you can go into Best Buy and walk out with a computer pre-installed with Ubuntu, with a Linux kernel. Um, doesn't have a lot of software in there, but of course, Apt is there so you can install the local software if you want to run it. And if you're a developer, you want to run that on the hardware, that's fine. And if you want the Windows Enterprise desktop environment streamed to you, then when you're a business, you pay for that functionality, you get that functionality. And Microsoft, in one swoop with buying one company, with a few decisions would accomplish a couple of things. First of all, it's no, when, when those users walk in and they say, I need a new computer and, and I write emails and sometimes I browse YouTube and I game. What do you do by game? I play Facebook games. Okay, guess what? You know, you don't need the enterprise thing, the, the stock install of Ubuntu that Microsoft owns and collects all the telemetrics. That'll be enough for you. You can go <laughs> ahead and do that. You can run Chrome. You can run Firefox. You can write your emails. You can write your Word documents. Do all those things. Okay. All right. You want to upgrade? You want uh, Microsoft Office? No problem. Office 365 comes. Create the little icons. Basically, they're, they're electron wrappers. Oh, fantastic. That's great. And now Microsoft... <laughs> can compete with Apple on the 
I just want something that works. I pull it out of the box and it works. Canonical is because they own them. They're already going to take care of the hardware enablement and, and making sure all of that stuff. So Microsoft doesn't have to do any of that. They're going to work with the hard manufacturers and Microsoft can go back to doing what they want to do, which is charge businesses a lot of money to manage their business, which is what Microsoft does well. And for the, 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 the upside for us as a Linux community, if we're willing to tolerate the inevitable privacy implications of it, the reality is you're going to be able to walk out of Best Buy with a computer that runs Linux. Finally. Is that really so bad? Yeah, maybe. It's yes. kind of, if you think about it's it, it's really, really yeah. it's the same thing that Google did with the Chromebooks. It's just Microsoft is going to do it. And instead of some piece of crap underpowered laptop, it's going to be every laptop will just come to come with that because that's what's going to enable developers to do what they do. And Microsoft will stop looking at all these Apple computers bouncing around there. Yeah, places. I think you underestimate Microsoft and the amount of money that they make from charging people to continue to support, you know, their me version. They still have installed in their enterprise environments and all oh, they'll that. Still that. Charge that. Yeah. Oh, they'll still charge that. They'll just charge that. It'll be a, it'll be a subscription service. It'll be, Hey, you want to run your app or you want your thing to work? Well, guess what? We don't support legacy installed windows 10 anymore. Now you have to have the stream version of windows 10 It's 15 bucks per month per user. That's a yeah. way better deal for Microsoft. I don't think canonical has to be involved in that for them to do it. And I don't think that canonical would want to be, Mainly because the it would the more. What if Canonical has one of those boards that says it's been two hours since somebody mentioned Microsoft buying us? Like, and they just keep updating <laughs> yeah, it. You know? It does happen way too much. Well, as far as we know, that's not happening. But interesting question. We appreciate it. Cubicle Nate asks us from Deal and Extend, which is another podcast and destination links network you should check out. If you were a superhero, which one would you be? Can be from any universe. I would be Steve Jobs. So the next question here <laughs> is. I believe it. I believe you would be. <laughs> well, no, I, sure. I would be Doctor Strange to answer that seriously. Doctor Strange is my favorite superhero. Yeah, I would go for an obscure one called Molecule Man. And that's because essentially, you know how like everybody knows that Thanos had the Infinity Gauntlet because of the movies and how he has all these powers to change reality. Molecule Man has that by default anyway. So that's just his ability. He can change reality and stuff. So I would go with that because it's cheaper. Nice. But, All know, right, I'm Michael. Well, Computer Kid wants to know, why did you choose to make your own network rather than joining an existing one? The reason, okay, the main reason is, this is a serious question followed up by the joke you went. Okay, so this their serious question, the answer is because I didn't think that there was a network available to me that I wanted to be a part of anyway. And I also didn't want to just join a network and then be done with it. I wanted to make a network that applied the open source philosophy for a network because prior to this, prior to Destination Linux Network, there wasn't really a network that had this, this philosophy where the network is open to people to become a part of it, not just in the sense of like joining as a host, but also bringing their existing stuff to the network. So for example, Jason Evangelo with Linux for Everyone, he already had his podcast and he decided to join the Destination Linux Network as a part of it. And he still has control over his show because it's his show. So that's the main purpose of you it know, is that I, I wanted that I, to exist. I, I think you're selling yourself a little short. One of the things that I think appealed to me about DLN was the fact that every other place wants to own the content right? Every, most places will not start a network and say, well, you do whatever you want and we'll just help get viewers to your show because we believe that the collective community interest is more important than, than any one individual show or any one individual network. And that to me is the thing that sets Destination Linux apart. Any other network understand that that, and there, there's some really good ones out there. I'm not, not bagging on them, but they all, the, the, the content creators work for that network. They have editorial uh, oversight over the content that goes out and all of those things. 
Well, DLN, it's you're taking people that are doing good work in the community and saying, hey, let me just let's help each other and just say, hey, here is a collection of really good people that are doing really good individual work. But it's not like Ask Noah show is a deal and carried show. It's not like we have a conversation about the content of Ask Noah. You guys find out about it with the rest of the audience. The same is true for Jason Evangelo. So I just, I think that there's a, you've tried something new that hasn't been done before. And I think it has some real, some real value in terms of, of, of freedom and anti-censorship that doesn't exist in other networks. I mean, look at front page Linux. You have people out there who have things they want. They want to write tutorials out there, which Mm -hmm. have been two of our most popular articles and front page Linux has blown us away in its growth. But they were able to have an outlet immediately that would have viewers from all around the world to their articles. And there's lots of people out there in our community that want to contribute. They want to hear their voices heard. They want to have their written word heard. And if they go out there and start their own blog and start their own podcast, well, you've got in four or five years before you ever build an audience big enough that anybody's going to see it. So in this case, we're able to give people who have awesome voices who want to contribute content an immediate outlet that they get to keep their content and control it and not become ours. So I think that's good points. So Jack-Jack5 asked, Noah, are there any Microsoft products you would actually prefer to use if it was available on Linux? Lots of Microsoft on people's minds these days. No, I don't think Microsoft makes anything that is is just arbitrarily better. Like if you look, you know, Skype, the, Zoom is does more than Skype does. And, obvi- and I actually think in a lot of ways does it better. Edge is just Chrome. Windows has nothing on, on the actual base operating what system. What about Office? I've, I've tried teams. It's not that great. Office is, office is, if I was going to do things that were very office specific, like if I had a bunch of really powerful, very complicated Excel formulas, I would have to use office proper to do that because they won't translate into to LibreOffice. But the important thing to remember is, and I've actually done this for a client, they switched to LibreOffice, said we have these very, very complicated macros and 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 um, formulas. We had to hire a expert to come in and translate them to LibreOffice, but it wasn't LibreOffice wasn't capable of doing the work. It was just that it didn't follow the exact same syntax vernacular, all those kinds of things. We had there were some little tweaks that had to be made. But the software was just as powerful to do all those things. So I don't know that there's really a single cool. Microsoft product that I would say. Like, that's the one thing that would keep me on Windows. If I could, that's the one thing I would use. Nice. I love it. Friar Dest asks, Michael, what non-technical related hobbies do you have? He sits on stools. Yes, stools. I'm a stool aficionado. Uh, but uh, really, uh, I'm, I like comic books. I've, but uh, I'm a big fan of comic books, and I've been reading it since I was a kid. So I'm a big fan of that. And also anything related to comics, like you know superhero movies and stuff like that. So that's like... I, I'd say you have watch parties that you don't invite me and Noah to. Well, okay. Um, yes. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> Tideman asks, how often does Das Geek have to replace, refill the bottles behind his monitor? So that's fascinating. It's amazing what you leave out that you think nobody's going to notice, but then you pan your camera one way and boom, they pick up on the fact that I have probably seven or eight Jack Daniels empty bottles behind my monitor here. And the reason why I keep those particular bottles is they are all engraved gifts from my wife that she buys because one of my favorite things on the planet is single barrel Jack Daniels. And so I have those bottles uh, that are engraved for various Valentine's gifts or whatever. So that's why I keep those empty bottles. And yes, they're all empty because I drink it. Uh, Danny Boy asks, do you guys read fiction? And if so, what are your, some of your favorite book series, Noah? 
Noah doesn't have time to read. I, I actually I read a lot. Uh, I don't read in, in the in this in, from the standpoint that I open up a book and, and read. I listen to audiobooks. Um, but it is a critical. That's how I stay up to date on on technology. And and I just got. I mean, it's most of the stuff I read is not fiction. It's dry stuff. Uh, I read a lot. I was I just got done with a book on Signal Seven. There are some uh, riveting reading for you, and 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 why the U.S. cellular system is supreme and why signal seven, despite all of its security vulnerabilities will not be able to be swapped out anytime soon because it would literally fundamentally break connectivity with the rest of the world. So I, I, I don't read that kind of fiction or, or fiction per se, but I, I, I like books. I don't, I suppose you guys, you're more into the science fiction stuff. No, I, all of my stuff is the same. It's all, you know, nonfiction books, uh, my audio and a lot of it's audio book, extreme ownership, atomic habits, sales EQ, the inevitable start with why I do have some books in here that would, would range in here. Like I have, well, American icon on the Martian. I have Jurassic mm. park on here, some star Trek series and things like that. But for the most part, everything I listen to is kind of leadership style business. Yeah. And uh, my favorite author in the world, and I can't pronounce his name right ever is Kurt Vonnegut, but everything he makes, uh, I love. So if you're looking for a good, book series, everything he's ever written, I think is supreme. Amazing. Jastam asked Noah, in a weird quirk of nature, you are given a choice for all of your computers to be completely replaced with, ooh, I love these, A, Windows 8, not 8.1, or B, Linux Mint 19.3, but on Butter FS. Whichever you pick, you will be doomed to stick with that system OS for the rest of the year, unable to switch even DEs. Which do you choose? Mint, for sure. Here's the Wait, thing. First you might all, not have heard. I said with ButterFS. I know. Here's the, the truth is this, right? <laughs> like as bad as ButterFS is, and it is bad, if you if you work within, the, it, it, you have to take the Apple approach. Here's how to hold the phone. If you <laughs> do what ButterFS tells you to do, it's a perfectly fine file system. It will work. The the where I where ButterFS lost me entirely and where I kind of just went on like I'm done recommending it to people I'm done speaking positively about it is when a few years ago they came across a fundamental thing that they couldn't solve and they we kind of looked at it and went okay that's broken and they went well there's really nothing we can do to fix that we'd have to start all over and the fact that we acknowledge that and the fact that we're not doing anything about it and the fact that that we're just going to accept that and move on and ZFS doesn't make those kinds of decisions there's a clear winner for me but. If my choice is between that and NTFS, are you kidding me? I'll go with ButterFS. It makes it look Fair like enough. a Cadillac of file systems. I think that's an easy one. I would choose yeah. the same. Um, sure. Michael, if you could bring back, this is the last question, bring back a media format of old and have it somehow popularized today in such a way that it could become commonplace again, which would you choose? There's, I like zip disks this and stuff. Totally should have went to Noah. It's, no, no, Go no. We're, it's going to the the zip disks and stuff like that is all that's interesting. But there was this like a pre previous episode we had Jill on, and Noah and Jill started talking about stuff that we had never heard of, right. and I wanted to like so I want to bring back whatever that was. So Noah, could you remind us what was the disk that had like a terabyte of data that was in the the oh, era? Cyquest. Yeah, that kind of thing. So I would want Cyquest. to. I want to bring that back just so I can try it out and say that kind of stuff. So. All right, Noah, I think this question was made for you. What media format of old would you want to be popularized and bring back into the mainstream today? I would say uh, I, I, I want a new one. Can I invent a new one or does it have to be old? 
You know if what? Michael to, gave an old one. Go ahead and give a new one if it, you want. If it had to be old, I'll agree with Michael uh, and say SideQuest. But here's what I want. I want to get away from USB discs. Like the USB port was never designed to put it in, take it out, put it in, take it out, put it in, take it out, put it in, take it out. They all get all loosey-goosey after a while. And then you're and then the laptop is it's no good. Um, I want to see like a genuine, like universal drive on the front that has basically uh, little SSDs and you plug the SSD in and, and to the front of the computer and it goes flush with the computer. It looks super nice. And then that's what we put in cameras. It's what we put in in, in laptops. We'll put, we, we put these readers in, in, in desktops. Like everything uses this thing where you can just take these little cartridges and plug them in and then you have storage and we can swap around from everything. We, we can be done with micro SD and SD and compact flash and SATA readers and M.2 and MVM. Like there's all all these different things. Can we just have like one thing that we? Or it uses like NFC and it magnetically attaches to whatever device, and that becomes even storage. Yeah, even better. Hey, be we cool. should make this into a trillion dollar idea. Okay, let's do it. Okay. Well, thank you all to the community for sending in your awesome questions. I, I loved the questions. I love the sense of humor and also the technical questions here. We hope you enjoyed it as well. But now it's time to get into our gaming section. So the game I chose this week is System Shock Reboot because System Shock is one of those games that is beloved by so many. It has a massive cult following. After two decades, Night Dive Studios is rebooting and reimagining the original System Shock. They're going to keep the new game true to the classic experience, which you've heard that before and people failed, but I believe them here, keeping all the things that you loved while giving a modern look and feel with this game. The game was funded on a Kickstarter campaign and reached the goal, the stretch goal, to bring the game to Linux. And so I think this is an awesome game that a lot of people love, and we're going to get a native port of it to Linux thanks to all the people who donated to that cam campaign out there. And I don't know, uh, Michael, I, I assume, Noah, you've never played it because you're not a big gamer yet. That's the keyword. But, Michael, have you played System Shock? I have not. There's a lot of games that I have not played. Well, and or shame. Well, it's because I I wasn't I was a gamer, but I wasn't really I was a console gamer back in yeah. back in the day. So I wasn't really a PC gamer until probably five to seven years ago or something like that. Like it was very recent in that case. I used to be just a console, and I played console games all the time. Like you know, in every generation. And the the interesting thing for me was that when I switched to doing PC gaming, I realized I should have been doing this the entire time because consoles are nice. But the amount of uh, like flexibility that you have with PC gaming and the the amount of power you can get and like the the quality of the games is just better. So I I wish I'd done it earlier, and that's why I wanted to go back and like play these games that weren't available to me uh, on the console stuff, like playing right. System Shock or maybe even going back and playing the original System Shock and that kind of thing, and also like Half Life, which I still haven't played. We talked about that previously. Well, what I, I want to touch on is we've received feedback before that I skip every time the rest of your episode when you get into gaming because I don't care about gaming. Well, as you know, I've been exploring and playing into the Apple ecosystem to find out what it is that has built a $1.5 trillion empire over there that Linux doesn't have. And what I have found, you're going to get a preview of the videos here that are coming, is that, in fact, Linux has things that Mac OS could never dream of. For instance, the gaming platform on Linux is so vastly superior to Mac OS because of their choice to go 64-bit only and basically wipe out 70% of the Steam store 
the ability to use Proton that we have is so vastly superior that Linux has a leg up in this arena. And if you think that doesn't matter, the gaming industry is worth $152 billion. Now, that doesn't sound a lot because we just used the $1.5 trillion figure, but let's put this in perspective. The global box office for movies where we have all these award shows and everything else talking about all these celebrities and these big budget films, they are $41.7 billion globally. The entire music industry is $19.1 billion globally. So let me repeat the gaming value of $152 billion worth of customers in which Linux for the first time ever is now dominating an almost unequal ground with Windows or getting close as it's ever been before. It's a big deal when we cover gaming, a big deal. It should matter so to everybody. Let, let, let me ask you this. Is, is it a fair summation to say that developers are going towards the world of Windows with WSL, but gamers are, are, are gaining more stable ground? Maybe we're not stealing guy, people away from, from Windows yet, but we're gaining stable ground on the, uh, on the gaming side? I mean, yeah, Linux, it, compared to Mac OS, which obviously has 19% of the market share, whereas Linux has, let's just say, let's give it 3% because nobody really knows, but we know it's somewhere between 2 and 3%, has a vastly improved gaming experience over any Apple machine out there. So that's just customers to take. It's just customers to go steal. And the gaming market is massive, and Steam's push, what they've done for Linux Desktop and, and uh, Code Weavers, what they've done together as a team to bring gaming to Linux has opened up a whole new arena of potential users of the Linux Desktop. And it's not some small little market where a bunch of kids are coming over. It's a $156 billion market that really matters to capture, and Linux is leagues above anything Apple has. Apple's out there just trying to push their Apple Arcade with a bunch of, you know, kid pixelated games out there because you can only play half of your, your games on a Mac if you even have a powerful one enough to play it. That's a big deal and something that the Linux community should really be talking about. So even if you don't care about gaming, you should care about gaming or the adoption of Linux. Yeah, and also just in addition to that, because we have like Proton, like you said, is is an amazing thing that we have. And if you haven't seen it, there's a latest video from Linus Tech Tips where they were talking about uh, Linux gaming has basically become a, a, a big game changer now because of Proton and because of the, the ease of use of getting started and having things work. And Linus with millions but, of subscribers when he started right. to care about Linux is when gaming on Linux actually got to the point where it was good. Yes. Beforehand, he had done a couple of videos and things, but nobody cared. But at the point he starts making videos saying, hey, Linux games actually run faster on Linux than they do on Windows. Well, yeah, that's going to get you a ton of views. That's going to get a lot of people thinking. And on Reddit, again, a lot of people were responding to that video. Oh, my gosh, after that, I'm trying Linux. I'm trying Linux. I'm trying Linux. That's the type of stuff we need to be pushing instead of WSL. Yeah, absolutely. let me ask you this. Is there is there any hope for like a Steam cons? Because so here, what are the things that gets after me for, for gaming just in general, but certainly gaming on Linux is I have too many important things I have to do with my computer to to experiment with this stuff, right? Is there anything I can buy where I can just buy a thing, plug it in, and play games on Linux? Is that does that exist? Would you consider the Steam stream? What is it called? Well, I was thinking the Steam Link, yeah. Steam Link, that's it. That's yeah, kind of what Steam I'm thinking. Link. I still think you have to have a computer. You'd have to have a dedicated PC for that. But you yeah. know, some of the stuff me and you were talking about offline, Noah, that amazing Intel Skull Nook, 
you know, that would be a sweet gaming machine that you could hook up an eGPU to and have a very small kind of media center that Mm -hmm. plays your games that you use Steam Link to move it to your televisions and everywhere else throughout the house. So we just found a reason for you to get away with buying that and your wife won't yell at you. Well, another thing... I'm all in. (laughs) Another thing that's cool about it is that the the Steam Link doesn't exist anymore as far as a product goes. You you can't purchase the Steam Link anymore. And the reason you can't is because they made it where any computer, including a Raspberry Pi, can become a Steam Link using their software that they released, which is even more amazing because you can just use things that you already have to create a Steam Link. And I know you have enough Raspberry Pi. And these things are available on eBay for $6.50. So I kind of feel like I might just buy a Steam Link. I mean, you totally could just buy a Steam Link if you wanted to. I have a Steam Link too. It still works. It's it's really cool. The fact that you can use it with a Raspberry Pi makes it so more accessible to so many people. That's the thing that excites me about what they're doing. start buying like five Raspberry Pi 4s a week. (laughs) <laughs> yeah, just put it, just build it into the budget. Just yeah, turns exactly. out you can do anything with them. So like, they're just a really useful thing to have around. Indeed. Yep. So up next in the show is the software spotlight. And this week we're going to talk about the thing we mentioned last week, and that is Photopea. So Photopea, it's not open source, Michael. Why are we talking about this? Correct. It is not. Thank oh, you. Because I brought it up last yes. week. Yes, you brought yeah. it up. So it's your fault. Thanks. However, it's also fantastic. So so people who are, might not be aware, I am a marketer in terms of like my regular day job kind of thing. And I'm also a graphic designer and I've been doing design for a very long time. I've been it's and I've been in the Adobe world for decades at this point. So when oh, I sorry. found right when I found Photopea, I was like, oh, OK, this is interesting. It's a basically it's a competitor to Photoshop, but in a web browser web app. And I was like, what? That can't be possible. That that shouldn't work very well. So I was like, okay, I'll try it. I'll give it like a month and see how far I can go. And that was, I think, I don't know, 10, 11 months ago, something like that. And I've been using Photopea exclusively since then. Now, that's not to say that Photopea is better than Photoshop. It's not because Photoshop's had 20 years of development. So it's got a lot more stuff it ha- that they can do. But the fact that it has gotten so close to Photoshop in very little time in terms of how much work they've had, to be, time they've had to put into it. And it's in a web browser and it has all the important fundamental things. So if you're not a graphic designer, you might not care about these things, but there is one particular feature that is incredibly important, and that is non-destructive editing, which means that you can make changes mm. to your your work, your artwork, and your logos, and your graphics, and whatever, and all those changes are not modifying the original so, the original photo, the original work. You, you're you just putting stuff on top of it, and that way you can go in and change it at any time, and make adjustments, and every other adjustment beyond that will adjust automatically to the previous thing you just did. That is what non-destructive editing is, and it's an incredibly important thing. So anytime I see any kind of graphic design tool that comes out, if it doesn't have non-destructive editing, I don't care to use it. Like it well, has it's gotta be, what is so it, many. like uh, $699, $100 less than Adobe, or maybe oh, it's $89 oh, yeah. a month, or My bad. $100 I forgot, a month? I forgot to mention that. Technically, you can use it for free. So it has it has ads on the side if you want to and you just want to use the ads or you don't care about ads you can just use Photopea for free and all the features that come with it are available it's not like you just you have you get like a limited version and then you got to pay for it to get the things it doesn't do that but if you do want to remove the ads you also get some extra features that are not necessary but just like it's just nice to have like additional uh, like a larger history redo size or undo size that kind of thing but the the price for that is only forty dollars per year. And that is it. 
And I Wait, did but switch I'm to an enterprise serious business and I need a team of 20. So I budgeted 15 grand for my Adobe licenses. <laughs> How much would that cost on Photopea? Let me look here. Oh, four hundred dollars for three hundred for a year of it for my team of 20. <laughs> Man, I just saved a ton of money, Michael. Thank yeah. you. Yeah, I'm going to send that in a donation to Destination Linux instead. That it would be a great decision. Absolutely. Uh, Photopea is really cool. Software. But if you use, you know, yes. the Photoshop stuff, guess what? You can import PSDs, XDs, Sketch, PDFs, XCFs from GIMP, RAW, or JPEGs, PNGs, GIFs, TIFFs, TGA, SVGs. All of that is supported as well. Can I so, just point out that yeah. I love that this thing drops you right into the editor? Like you go to photopea.com and it just now you're editing a photo. Hey, congratulations. Yeah. Here you go. No I don't install account. GIMP. I don't use yeah. anything else. It's the it's the best program out there. And I can use it from any computer because it runs right through the browser. And every and this is not impressive for anybody, but every graphic I do anyways, is all done through Photopea. Um, and then Michael takes that same PSD file or, or yeah, the, the PSD file, and then he re-edits it and makes a good graphic out of it. And then I upload that back to my uh, website. Still yeah. using Photopea though. So, and also a quick note, I know people are going to be interested in this piece because it is running in the web browser. So you might be thinking, I don't want to trust someone else's servers to do my graphics. The Photopea does work locally in your browser. So once you load it, you can just turn off your internet and it will then be able to do everything in your browser as it is. When you save stuff, it will save it locally. When you when you do all your editing, it does it locally. So that if, if you're worried about that, there you go. Do they have like a do they have a snap or anything like that that we could, that that could use it? Do you think that's maybe down the road? I mean, essentially be an electron wrapper, right? Maybe yeah. Eventually they could do that, but they they haven't done it yet. So it's it's only in the web browser. And they also specifically suggest that people use Firefox because they think Firefox works better with Photopea. Ooh, I like them more already. Yep. Right. If you want something that doesn't have a lot of uh, a lot of whiz bang features, you want something maybe simple, but something that works every single time. You have to check it. Check out FZF. Now you might say to yourself, "What is FZF?" Well, check it out. It is a it is a, how do they describe it? A fuzzy search tool? Something like that. So this is really great. F, F, Z, F, and search for, you know, a, a given file name or, or something that you're looking for. Oh, go through. Uh, you can do it right from your terminal, right from the CLI, and you're able to find files in your terminals. Um, I, if, if, if memory serves, the, the thing that really separates FCF from the regular search utilities that you have available to you is the fact that this is going to allow you to, even if you don't know the entire name or the, you don't know exactly what you're looking for, it, it does, it can be ambiguous and you'll still be able to search it without having to use any sort of regular expressions or any sort of bash foo, anything like that. Just type FZF and then the file that you're looking for, you'll have to have it installed uh, and it will hopefully help you locate. Well, I love FCF. This has changed my use of the terminal entirely to have a strong use search editor. terminal? Yes, absolutely. Wow. So all I do is I go, I open the terminal, type in FZF and then hit enter. And then you can type in any file name you want and its ability to find and search out everything on your machine is incredible. And you could, you know, find that JPEG, you could find that file that you're wanting to move to another area on your computer super fast, super efficient without having to come up with these long lines of grep and then pipes and then all of this other stuff. Just FZF, put the name in, boom, you're done. I'm telling you, it will change your life. A big thank you to each and every one of you by supporting watching or listening to Destination Linux. If you want more Destination Linux, become a patron like all of these beautiful faces that have joined us here today. 
You get a bunch of perks like unedited versions of the show. You get to troll Michael and you get to watch it all happen live. So you get to troll Michael apparently, which is great, I guess. Mm -hmm. But what's actually definitely great is that you can represent your love for DL and open source by picking up Destination Linux Network swag by going to destinationlinux.network slash store. We have t-shirts, hoodies, mugs, and I need to get rid of that stickers thing because it's it's definitely happening. Okay, Mm -hmm. yeah, sure. I, sw- I swear it, soon that will no longer be a joke against me. It will say we have stickers and it will be true. If you're not a part of the DLN community, hey, here's your opportunity to start. We're inviting you. Today, you're invited to join the Destination Linux community. For a limited time only, you can, and by limited time, I mean basically unlimited, you can join the DLN Super Groovy Discourse Forum. We've got a real-time chat in there as well. The DLN Telegram group does that. And it's not only super groovy, it's tubular. So if you want something, <laughs> if you want to have a dank game sesh, then join the DLN Discord server to have some voice chat with the squad. They too will write scripts that don't make any sense. And Man, you are <laughs> super hipster today. So no? hipster. That's really cool. Jay. I just read what you wrote. This, uh, it was, well, it was so dank. Job. You did it so well. Yeah. So hey, thanks. We're not throwing shade or nothing. That was good. <laughs> As we drop these great new features. Yeah, exactly. Tubular. <laughs> yeah. Tubular. By the way, that's hipster for we've added it, not we've taken it away. Normal oh. speak would be that means we've taken it away when we say we've dropped that feature. But in in, yeah. in hipster language, it means we've added it and it has just been released. Right. It's and we're also going to be dropping this no. this episode pretty soon, too. And if you want more content from us, then you're gonna, you can check it out. The, the rest of the Destination Linux Network is not only do we have more of our own content. So DOS Geek, Ask Noah Show, and Tux Digital are all on the Destination Linux Network. We also have a lot of other great, awesome open source goodness for you to nom nom on. Hey, you should also check out Front Page Linux. That's now combined with the Amazing Linux Plus Plus for news, opinion pieces, and tutorials. Learn more at frontpagelinux.com. Everybody have a great week. And remember that the journey itself is just as important as the destination. Thanks, everyone. See you next week. Going to get my final. Bye! You hipster. All right, everyone. You can turn on your cameras, turn on your mics, and come talk with us. Welcome to Destination Linux. Destination Linux.